slapped on my face. <laughs> oh, something's happening. YouTube is connected. Right, thank fuck for that. I really thought that was going to fail then for a second. Uh, this is this is the thing about like doing doing your own show is it's like it's sort of quite cool and edgy to describe yourself as sort of like I'm doing this with no industry backing or like this is independently produced. But then the flip side of that is like I'm working on such a shit budget that like literally every episode of this is like, is it going to happen? <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 40 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. Um, now, if you know me, you'll know back in the day I was something of an insufferable muso, uh, uh, really. Um, not far off a pub ball with it, like that sort of level. Um, I was the sort of person that you would make polite conversation with in the pub, in the Hobgoblin, in Maidenhead. Uh, and like maybe you would say like, oh yeah, like how's things, Aid? How's, how's the band? Or something along those lines. Uh, and what you're looking for is like a, yeah, yeah, pretty good. Or like maybe even at stretch, you might be looking for something like, yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of new tunes. Uh, but instead, you'd get me chewing your fucking ear off for half an hour about the intricacies of the production on the latest Silverchair album. Uh, and one of the things that's always fascinated me from then in that musically creative period right through to today is the power that sound has over your brain. Like why we feel sad when violins are playing, why a dance track might get you energised why trap music makes us want to murder one another, apparently. Um, so my guest this week has a PhD, a master's and an MBA, all exploring the effects of music on the brain and has branched out into biohacking as the author of, of books, uh, The Music Diet and now Neuron, The Smart Wellness Made Easy. Um, so please welcome my guest this week, Dr. Julia Jones, who I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that your expertise are going to allow the sound of my voice to make people's brains feel interested. Do you think that's something you can help me with? Well, that's a tall order. I mean, you know, how long have we got? Uh, an hour. <laughs> is, that, is that too much? They'll be disinterested within 20 minutes, probably. Start the timer. Yeah. Um, how are you? How's your week been? Well, pretty intense, okay. if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> But in a good way, and that's why I've cracked open a beer because it was like the countdown to the cheers moment. Happy Friday! Happy Friday, indeed. So yeah, there's a lot of amazing stuff happening at the moment, and I'm literally just trying to keep up with it yeah. all and make sense of it. I suppose a good place to start would be to get a sort of um, like an academic introduction of of. Because like music's effect on the brain is quite a specific thing, I would imagine, to be researching and to be interested in. Um, and I've sort of got a little bit familiar with your bio, but it would be, I guess it'd be a good starter point for people listening to get an understanding of how did you get into that? Like, were you were you a, a super muso back in the day and then you just went down this kind of psycho psychology or musicology route or like how, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it was a freak coincidence, really, um, because I was in a band and I was DJing and I was an undergrad doing sport and exercise science degree. Mm. And in 1991, so literally, you know, exactly 30 years ago, it was September, October 1991, I was on an exchange, a student exchange trip mm. uh, and got to go to Los Angeles um to the to the university in LA wow. 
I got the best deal because the, the, their students went to Cardiff oh. and I got to LA. So it's like, win. <laughs> Imagine that. Well, Imagine like you leave, like you, you probably tell everyone in LA, you'd be like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to Britain. I'm going to go to the United Kingdom. Oh yeah, it's going to be a minute. And then you step off the, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not dissing Cardiff. I'm sure Cardiff's amazing, yeah. but. But it just literally, I was in sunshine and they were in pissing rain for a whole month. But uh, that's which is why Wales is so green. I'm I'm Welsh. I love I love Wales, but I do think I got the better deal of that exchange. But while I was in LA, I got invited to visit a US naval base uh, in just outside San Diego. And while I was there, the the physical training instructors were showing us how they were using what is now known as the trendy term biohacks. But it wasn't, you know, that term didn't exist 30 years ago, but they were showing us how the U.S. Navy SEALs used breathing, um, visualization, Mm. and music, right, and sound. And because I was in a band and I was DJ, it's like as soon as they started talking about this, it's like, whoa, oh, my God, this is incredible. And they were showing how they were using that to control stress in high-stress situations, Mm. uh, how Improve sleep quality, how to maintain motivation, uh, you know, just all, all of these ways that they were manipulating uh, mood, performance in general, using music and sound and breath and visualization. So I was just blown away by this. I was 21 years old. I came back, graduated, um, and started working with British Olympic squads as a psychologist, a psychology team. So started teaching the uh, the you know the GB squads how to use music and how to use sound to control anxiety in high pressure situations, how to boost confidence, motivation, you know all the all of these tricks that I've been shown uh, during that visit, and it, it kind of sn- snowballed from there really because then I did a master's in sport and exercise science and dug into the effects of music on exercise. So my research looked at how you, when you synchronize your movements to the beat, you are able to perform better, perform for longer. There's, there's, a, there's an increased endurance effect. That was published in the Journal of Sport and Exercise Sciences. And it, and it kind of went from there. Then I started, I came out of the sport and exercise world and started showing companies how to use music to influence customers. Yeah. So. Exactly the same, you know, it's like play these songs in store and this is this is how the brain responds and uh, and now I've come back full circle back into health and wellness because it's just you know frustrated me massively watching even by the late nineties we knew that diet and exercise and fitness mm. were not producing healthy populations and there was a reason for that and yet we're still punting this information out. And these guidelines out. So I started writing a health trilogy of three books that pointed out why diet and fitness doesn't lead to wellness and how to use other things like breathing, music, sound, yeah. visualization, breath work, you know, intermittent fasting, all of that to, to kind of optimize the biology. And this kept kick started because my PhD looked at the effects of music from youth on memories. Right. So, so this all led to, to the trilogy that I've been writing now for five years. The first book, The Music Diet, came out in 2019. 
And the follow-up neuron came out this year, and I'm now writing the final part, which is called Auto-Tune, and that comes out next year. And if by the end of that we haven't really, uh, you know, got this information out to the masses, yeah, because it, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous that 30 years ago these things were being used in the elite military and elite sports, yeah. and yet they work for everyone's brain. But we're not teaching them in schools. We're not teaching these practices in the workplace why, when, why do you yeah. think that is because normally like i mean i can't really speak from a sort of health and fitness perspective but normally industrially with products things start off in the military and get fine-tuned and and then eventually they work their way down into the consumer space so you would think maybe it might follow a similar sort of track like they start this stuff on navy seals and i don't know army commanders or whatever and then eventually when they know that it works then they sell it to everyone else but it, that hasn't happened uh, no. And so, you know, this five years ago, this was like baffling me. It's like, why is this? Is this some kind of conspiracy theory? You know, why, why are we not telling everyone these really, really right. simple things that that drive wellness? And I, you know, I when I was in the 90s, I, I built a, a health club chain, a health spa chain for a family hotel group. It immediately we could see how profitable that fitness club model was people come every january they sign up their direct debits they come for a few weeks and you never see them again they never get around to cancelling the direct debits it's a phenomenal business yeah. model and that that hotel chain was sold for 180 million quid that family became multi-millionaires and and lots of fitness chains emerged through the 90s and the 2000s and still exist today yeah. and they are the same format and delivering exactly the same stuff as we were in the 90s there's been no innovation mm. because because the business model works it's you know kind of genius, that, isn't it because it's like you don't like i've joined gyms in the past and the it's it's I, I can't think of like the right way to describe it other than they get you to join it's a subscription model you don't want to cancel the gym because you don't want to feel shit and useless you're like, oh, I'll probably get back into it next month when things have settled down. So you carry on paying and you can, and it's a subscription service to nothing. Like you couldn't think of a better exactly. business model, right? And it, it, and it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, it, it doesn't actually work for wellness mm. because wellness is completely different to fitness. And that is now totally evident in the, in the scientific literature and has been for many, many, many years. Mm. And this is kind of you know what I'm really focusing on on pushing now because the, the the my second book documented an experiment I did on myself last mm. year and January 1st I cancelled all gym memberships fitness subscriptions everything and just spent money on a smart wellness ring right. that tells me my body temperature my sleep uh, quality my stress levels my activity levels my breathing rate and um, so I spent money on that, a decent pair of headphones, um, and just focused on and a gut health test right. and, a, and a test of biological age. That's how I spent the money that I was spending historically on an annual gym and membership. what was the output of making that shift? And so like every single pillar of wellness transformed, like literally every. And now all of my clients, that's the first thing I do is like cancel your gym membership. Yeah. Focus on fixing your habits, and then if you decide that you want to, you know, also fit 
the gym into into your thing, then fine. See it as a different mm. as a different thing. It's just not, you know, it's, it's just not efficient. And these biohacks are all about efficiency. Mm. It's it's about right. What are you trying to achieve, and what's the shortest, simplest route of of achieving that? And biohacks, by their very design use natural inputs to to the brain to optimize those ancient biological systems mm. and going to the gym is not a, is not something that our ancient biology is set up for you know we never needed to do that it, because we were acting is it not sort of i mean i've only recently started going to a gym um and it's fueled really by a desire to like I'm, i don't live the most active lifestyle any longer i'm i work from home i've got two kids the idea that i can get out for you know a run across country or whatever is a kind of fantasy and i'm not commuting and you know walking from train platform to train platform in the same way that i once was so um for me the idea of going to the gym like once every couple of days and then having a bit of a run or doing some weights kind of ticks a box and i like to think uh in my unscientific unresearched way i like to think that the the test of exercise that the frustration on the muscles and and so on is actually telling my brain to say it's like a same sort of reward mechanism that it would have done if i were a caveman and i was running across fields like is that fair or is that am i completely barking up the wrong tree yeah well but apart from the fact that cavemen weren't running across fields right unless they were being chased by a lion oh, right okay and that, that's, that's the reality is that most of the time we, we wouldn't be in that high intensity situation. And there, there is a big question mark about how we're positioning exercise because you actually just need to be active, right? Stand up more. So I bought a stand up desk and that immediately transformed my activity, my posture, everything, because I wasn't sitting down in front of Zoom all day mm. long. Uh, and hacking your environment like that is means that all of that activity is built into your into your day. And you know, my clients are time poor. Mm. As so, changing the environment and changing your habits so that you build more activity and more movement into your day, as opposed to going to the gym, which involves getting my gym gear together, driving to the gym, parking, going to the locker room, going, doing a net workout, having a shower, coming home, getting changed. And, you know, that that's taking two hours out of my day for a benefit that I could just achieve by, you know, I put my printer upstairs, so I had to go upstairs. I put the, the I parked at the far end of the car park instead of parking right next door to the door of the office. Just, just changing your habits mm. makes it much more natural to, to kind of achieve that. And a lot of my clients were going to the gym in the evening, mm. right? And that is activating your sympathetic nervous system at a time when you need to be dialing down your brain rather than being in a gym environment with blue lights screaming at you, <laughs> loud music, activating, and then you get home late and so you eat late. And so that whole thing disrupts your sleep quality and sleep is one of the essential pillars of wellness. Yeah, so you mentioned about pillars of wellness a minute ago. And I suppose if, you, if you're qualifying the success of, like let's say quitting the gym and then uh, you embark on smart wellness and then you achieve these sort of pillars of wellness, but then you mentioned also that wellness is different to fitness. So how would you qualify, how are you defining 
achieving a pillar of wellness or you know what like what is the uptick for you when do you notice that wellness is working so well i mean it's, it starts with nutrition right we we have the, the whole reason that we had to invent the, the gym in the way that we now use it mm. is to try and combat our poor eating habits yeah we're overeating we're gaining weight and the and so it was like right well we'll go to the gym to try and to try and compensate for that rather than dealing with the actual problem which is the eating mm. and the drinking um so consuming is a is a key pillar of wellness that you cannot avoid even if you're going to the gym you your gut bacteria and your microbiome may still be absolutely screwed you know when we're testing uh, very fit people and they are coming out poorly with the gut microbiome what's gut gut microbiome so we have bacteria that live in our gut right. that are essential to pretty much every part of our existence now we know it dictates mental health dictates mood dictates our metabolism it dictates our inflammation it dictates our response to things like cancer immunotherapy it's it's an essential uh, little community right. living in our heart that if we don't give it the right things uh it doesn't work properly and that is the starting point of is that, which dictates whether you're well is or that not. for like so if i eat nothing but burgers for a week and then i feel like shit i've sort of assumed that the reason I feel like shit is because I'm associating it mentally with me eating trash and being a bit useless and, you know, a bit of a slob. But is it, so is there actually some science to it that if you're, if you're eating nothing but shit, then there's bacteria oh, yeah. in your, in your stomach that will dictate yeah. how you feel. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is like absolutely, you know, yeah. a fact and, and the future of health will be precision eating. Yeah because we'll all be doing gut health tests and we'll get the results and it'll be like, oh my God, I've killed all the good bacteria <laughs> and I've supercharged all the back, bad bacteria. So now I've created this neighborhood that is like rioting yeah. because there's no, there are no p police, you know, it's all chaos in there because I've killed all the good ones and, and supercharged the bad ones. Wow. And we're only, we're only 18 minutes in, Julia, and you've blown my mind. Like how? <laughs> so is there? Is I mean, I don't want you to uh, express any. It's like a Tamagotchi, right? Do you, do you remember the Tamagotchi? Yeah. Is this before? No, no, age? I remember. Yeah. And and you had to like you know you had to feed them and you had to do all the all the things otherwise they mm. died right and and so the same with our gut bacteria we've got thousands of different types of bacteria in our gut right. that need natural food because they've evolved over you know i mean this is like we, we are a system that's evolved over millions and millions of years mm. they need natural foods not all the shit we've invented in the past 50 60 years and now eat as habit they need fruits they need vegetables they need fiber they need things that we're not giving them enough of yeah and yeah. so that the fastest route to, to wellness is to get a gut health test, stop going to the supermarket, so set up your home delivery yeah. so that the food comes to you. Okay. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, retail environments use neuroscience 
to influence your shopping behavior. So as soon as you go into the supermarket, you are a helpless victim with, with hands reaching out for things that, you know, have got amazing packaging and amazing rest, you know, ingredients that specifically have been created to target your dopamine reward pathways in the brain. So you want those things again and again and again. Yeah. And the only way to combat that is to set up your shopping basket and then get it delivered to your home every single week, packed full of fruit and vegetables. Yeah. But on Friday, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, like, so in in you mentioned like the gut health test. So for anyone that's listening or watching uh, that might think, actually, yeah, I do need to take some sort of responsibility here and try and improve things and achieve at least one pillar of wellness. Uh, how how affordable is a gut check? And what and like how how affordable is it? And also, if it comes back bad, is there is there a way back, or are they just fucked then? Yeah, no. I mean, you, you can very quickly transform um, your microbiome by by you know giving it what it needs. Mm. And with, with the gut health tests, it's they're you know they they are incredibly incredibly sophisticated now and the way that this came about is that when uh the the, the there's been a big large-scale research mapping the human genome and that same sort of technology started to identify all of these bacteria that we couldn't see before right. um because the bacteria also have genes because they're living things. So it was like when all the all the you know data was coming back, it's like whoa, hang on a minute, what are all these little things? It's like whoa, there's like trillions of bugs in there. Right. Uh, when was this? And really- Is this recently? Or- so yeah, I mean the last the last two decades, this is this has moved dramatically. But the last three years, it, it's just gone into warp speed because machine learning and you know huge data crunching and data scientists and ai are able to to look at all this masses of information and then and then look across so many people are having gut health tests now that there's a lot of there's a lot of data coming in so you can start to see oh whoa this 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 situation leads to this illness, this chronic illness, cancer, whatever. You can see, you can, they can literally see that it's coming, that it stems back to a disbalance in the in the gut bacteria. And if you can change quickly, right? So six months, and you can have a transformational impact on the horrendous uh, mess you have created in your gut. It's funny, like I know that you're speaking like you, as in everyone. But when you when you say it like that, it really feels like oh, I really have created. <laughs> feels like you're right. talking to me personally. As I'm, well, but, you know, this is so. This was part of my own experiment last year. You know, I've got decades of fitness, mm. and I did a gut health test, and I was like, holy shit, this is terrible. Yeah, you know, I I had really poor levels of gut bacteria diversity. It it was it was not good, and it was a real learning curve for me. Mm. To, to, to kind of reinforce my view that, that we have been barking up the wrong tree when it comes to health, and which is why it hasn't worked. Do you think... And it's about diets. You know, it's not about diets. It's about the habits. It's about changing your habits and setting up a, a, a home delivery that comes... You get a 
massive box of amazing fruits and vegetables delivered to your doorstep every week. Yeah. That's something that will take minutes to set up and that will transform your health because it's a habit that then helps you eat better. Yeah. Do you think as as someone who spent a lot of time approaching this from a, a sort of a, a scientist's perspective and looking at facts and figures and statistics and um and and doing your best to back up everything that you're saying does it piss you off that as soon as you attach the word wellness to it that there is this hurricane of scrutiny and uh i would imagine a lot of mocking like i hope you take that in the spirit that it's intended but it's like when people say about wellness the connotations from my perspective are like instagram models telling you to eat you know x y and z and then you'll have an amazing life um and i suppose the most famous example of that was that um uh, bell is it bell gibson i feel like it is bell gibson although now i'm thinking that rhymes a little bit too closely with mel gibson so maybe right it's just a killer <laughs> but um bell bell something anyway um in australia i think she was in uh and she famously uh like created this whole wellness brand and it all was like a house of cards and fell in on itself um does it does it piss you off that by talking about this stuff so credibly and having backed it all up with research that then as soon as you start talking about it the first thing that people like me would think is oh great like another another fucking goop you know <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, the way I'm trying to explain this is that with three three different labels, right? So you've got illness, mm -hmm. which we're all trying to avoid. Uh, and when you're not ill, you're well. So I, I don't want to be in illness, so I want to be in wellness, right? And then you've got fitness, which is over here, which is something completely different, which is what I need if I if I want to improve my my time in a 10k run or if I want to increase my strength or if I want to achieve muscle definition or, or something like that fitness protocols are designed to do that to, to increase those scores right that but that's not wellness wellness is the avoidance of illness and that's what I want because I don't want to be ill okay so so in in terms of like your definition of wellness versus their definition of wellness you define it as not getting sick and then you have the science there to back it up and that's that's the difference right correct cool cool okay and then sorry we didn't quite narrow down on the like the cost of a gut health check how much is that yeah so uh ranges between sort of well above 100 quid right now that's um, bad. I, I thought you were gonna say I, like oh it's you know no, I mean, only available it, it on used, and it's it used to be thousands and thousands of pounds, but it's because this science, the technology has, has progressed so rapidly over the past three years, mm. it's now mass market. And we've actually got, um, we, we are just partnering with a, with a lab in England, creating a simplified version. Because what I found with, with, with a lot of the gut health tests that I'm doing with clients, you get a 90 page report, which is just too much information, right? It's, yeah. it's really difficult to act upon s such a detailed, so many scores of every bacteria. And it's like, holy shit, like, what does this mean? You know, it, and there are some recommendations, but it's too overwhelming. And so this lab that we've now partnered with, that it, it produces one score out of 10. Okay. Um, and it's like, yes, your gut health, 
score is five. And here are the things that you can do immediately to take it to a seven or an eight. And, and I think that, that that's around 80 quid. And, and it's a, a stepping stone for that. And we want to get it down lower than that, right? It should be below 50 quid, I think, really, to, to get masses of people to be able to start adopting, adopting this response, uh, this, this uh, approach. I suppose it's one of these things where if you did lobby to get it uh, achievable that you could get it on the NHS, because... Uh, yeah. I mean, that would be a dream because then everyone could get a gut health report and then they could start making changes. And uh, in what, like one, two, three years, you would start to see, I guess, a sort of falling off of some of the issues that they uh, would have got had they not made improvements in their life. Um, yeah. Uh, and, but, but then I imagine also that as soon as you start lobbying to get something like this covered by the NHS, then you immediately get a load of flack for it, even though the long game approach, like the common sense, the logic of it would tell you this should be funded because it's going to make the cost of the NHS yeah. cheaper for us all in the long run, right? It's, it's going to happen. Like, it's definitely going to happen. These, these conversations are already going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, th there's so much overwhelming evidence now about the importance of the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm that it, it literally makes no sense, as you say, to, to not address it. And, and it will be the first step with, with GPs will be, right, you know, uh, okay, Julia, you need to uh, stop eating these foods and eat these, this food. Um, and I, so this is a classic example of this. Mm -hmm. I had um, eczema, like a recurring eczema thing from a, from 25 years ago that I had repeat prescription of steroid ointment for, right. right, to just control this eczema. And I did a gut microbiome test and it came back and said, right, stop eating these things. So I, I duly did that and it disappeared. Really? Right. So I'd been on steroid, and I've spoken to so many people since then and the same thing has happened. Like this... I'd, I'd been repeat prescription of steroid ointment for 23 years. Mm. And in fact, I shouldn't have been having dairy. And is there, I'm just playing devil's advocate, is there any chance that there's another change that you made in your life around that same time that could have explained it or? I don't believe it. No. I don't believe so. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's. I have a, a similar thing um not eczema but i had I, I don't know if you're familiar with a skin thing called lipoma um but it's like a sort of build up or, or my understanding of it is that it's a sort of build up of fluid um and i had one had had a sort of lump on my spine which as you can imagine being a relatively young guy having a lump just suddenly appear out of nowhere you're like what the fuck like and uh, I got it checked out by two doctors and both said it was lipoma and not to worry about it it would go away by itself um in in due course uh and they said but it could also get bigger <laughs> i was like well okay great and they said have you got private health care and i said no uh and uh and they said well j you know just leave it if it really gets bad you can you can pay private and blah blah, blah. Uh, and then i started going to the gym and lifting weights and honestly within four weeks of going to the gym and doing weights vanished and i was like yeah. Like, is it, 
I mean, they said it could go away by itself, but at the same time, I'm like, it seems a bit weird that at this exact moment that it just, you know? Right. Well, movement, you know, circulation, it's, we are, we are meant to be active and not sitting on our arse all day long. And that's the, mm. so it, yeah, absolutely. And getting out into the outdoor environment and just giving our, you know, this, this whole kind of smart wellness approach is about being smart, right? And, and using smart technology. So the smart thing to do is realize that we evolved in an outdoor environment and we now live in boxes. Mm. We work in boxes, then we go back and we live in boxes and then we go and exercise in boxes and then we go and entertain ourselves in boxes and then we're, you know, we're indoors so much. We are not in the outdoor in natural environment. And these ancient biological systems evolved using stimulus from the outdoor environment, which is why sound is so powerful mm. because our biology used sound to determine whether we were in a safe environment or a dangerous environment. Is that what it is? Because I, yeah. I thought, like earlier when you were talking about, you know, Navy SEALs and, and the military using sound and music, and um, I'm sort of interested in, in the sense that we know that fast music makes us more energised and we know that sad mu music makes us feel sad, but... I'd be keen to get your understanding of like sort of scratching beneath the surface as it were, like what, like what is it about sound or music more specifically that, that allow, like that manipulates us in that way. Like the, the nearest thing I can think of like that, that matches it is a, you know, a really moving scene in cinema, but that sort of makes more sense to me because it's like, if you're watching two human beings, I don't know, breaking up with one another or somebody mourning their mother that passed away, like you, you empathize, or at least you should empathize. Not everyone does, I'm sure. But, um, but with cinema, it kind of makes sense Like that's, you know, you're witnessing a, a, a sad thing, but with music, it's like, there's, there's something going on there. Like what, how is it that it's making me feel sad just by vibrations going through the air? What, what's going on? <laughs> Back to that scene, right? I mean, that, that scene, if you played happy music over the top of it and if you played other scary music over the top of it, and like, you can change the context of those visuals by the sound that you put, that you, that you put together with them. Mm. And that's the fa equally fascinating thing. It's that different types of sound give us different... Um, uh, what's the word? You know, clues. You know, as to oh, this this could be no, this is safe and it's happy, mm. uh, or this could be potentially dangerous because of the sound and all. You know, again, going back to the fact that this biology, uh, you know, evolved way before we'd invented any kind of electrical music or anything like that. It's sound that is a bunch of uh, vibrations tickling the inner ear and, and triggering action potentials in the brain, so electrochemical uh, reactions and responses in the brain. And all of that, when you, when you go back to the origins of that, like what did we use sound for? What, you know, what, what, is the, what was the brain using sound for mostly? And it's, well, to avoid danger, to stay alive, right? So, so sure. yeah. to avoid danger... Yeah. To, to find food, to, to find 
mates so that we could keep the survival of the species, you know, reproduction. Those, those, that was the purpose of, of sound. And we have harnessed the way that the brain uses different sounds. So is this a sound of safety or is it a sound of potential danger? We've harnessed that to create commercial music that plays on those responses. Mm. Because, because sounds that could potentially be mim mimicking danger, so the thundering of hooves or, you know, heart, fast beat, fast yeah. tempo. Lap. Yeah, you're right. Like a sort of kettle drum. Like they'll have a big kettle drum in like a sort of dramatic piece of music, won't they? And I suppose yeah, I mean, that's not dissimilar to having, yeah, like a, a, a rumble of thunder or like the sound of, I don't know, like some a, a herd of rhinos or something coming towards you. Like it's a, that's... And, and any beat like that, anything part fast beat, it's like, whoa, like, is this a danger? Is this a threat? Am I in danger? And when you know that you're not in danger because you're in a music venue and you can clearly see that, you know, there isn't a herd of rhinos coming towards you, then then rather than being terrifying, it's thrilling, right? And, and you get that kind of that dopamine, that surge of, of chemicals that give you that buzz. It's like, whoa, this is an incredible experience. Mm. Uh, uh, and the same with the, the other end, when you know, we, we know instinctively when we're trying, you know, when you're trying to get your 11 month old daughter to sleep you know you, you don't you don't swing her around and go rah, 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 rah. You, know, you, you just and no one taught you that you know yeah. that, that gentle and soft sounds and so are make her feel safe right and that and that is in us we know that instinctively that certain sounds are soothing and certain sounds are dangerous and that again comes back to the the natural environment when you're in an environment and it's just calm so and quiet here's a level deeper question then so is it like why why do we know that the rumble of thunder or herd of rhinos or whatever is the sound of danger when it's like i i get evolution and i get that you know if you were in a big open field and you suddenly heard like a rumble or whatever you might be a little bit uh, jarred by it but we're not in fields very often around herds of rhinos and we know that thunder isn't particularly dangerous so like how is that pre-programmed into our brains to make us know that these sounds are dangerous and exhilarating yeah well you just said it it's pre-programmed right so how do we walk like how, how does all how do we start at a certain age we start mimicking vocabulary and we start you know a lot of this how, how why did birds not like chicks fall out of the nest and just crash on the floor but they it is in that in that you think it's like kind of just passed down generation to generation embedded mm. right and and there's and this is and th this is why the this the this kind of smart wellness approach is about right let's be smart about this let's, let's accept the fact that we have ancient biology mm. and then realize things like these screens are giving my brain blue light right now so that means it's morning so it's not going to release melatonin i should have my blue light blocker glasses on but they're in the office um and and just understand that we have an ancient brain and biology and we're living in a modern environment 
that confuses the living shit out of our ancient systems, right? And it and it's just just mitigating those things and understanding them so that they don't mess up your biology. Yeah. It's the route to wellness. So if you know that ultra processed food kills your good bacteria, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you never can never eat it, but but you wouldn't eat it every night. Right, it, it would be a treat. Like I, I have pastry Friday. Friday is pastry Friday, yeah. and, and alcohol Friday <laughs> Saturday. You know, weekend weekend treats, and so that doesn't disrupt my gut microbiome because before I was, you know, not eating. I, I was eating how I thought was reasonably healthy, but in reality, it was not. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I. I want to sort of go back to um, to, to music for a second. Uh, something I read, uh, admittedly, I, th- I think it was just in a blog. I don't know how scientifically based it was, but um, it said something like that about 50%, that feels too low now, maybe 50 or 60% um, of people cannot or do not get goosebumps when they listen to music. Is that does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, this was a researcher who's based at USC in the university in LA. Right. He did his PhD, and not everyone uh, gets gets that effect. Um, and and you can tune into it though. That there's there's a song that that produces that effect. It, it, it was it was listed as being the song most likely to produce chills. I just can't. And it, like it was Rolling Stones song, "Give Me Shelter." Really? Because and um, and because there's a I don't know if you if you can remember this song there, but it's like yeah. you know this is this like a, I that was a good it's impression. Pretty good, yeah, it? you nailed it. Right, right, and but that voice that female voice that shrieking kind of high pitch wah, wah, you know it's like kind of like whoa what's going on there is that and that really triggers uh our our biological systems and and so yeah yeah it's like i it, can't imagine like i i said to my girlfriend a few few weeks or months ago after i had read it i was like can you believe this shit and it felt like a handicap for half the population or something like because i i think back to when i was uh you know super into music and obsessing over bands and producers and so on uh and i would you know if i listened to uh i used to be a big image and heat fan i don't know if you're familiar with their stuff um and uh there's a song that i i can't even remember the fucking name of now how embarrassing but um it was off like her solo album after she left the group that she had with Guy Sixworth. And anyway, there's like a sort of uh, uh, a sort of gradual crescendo of uh, strings on it. And it sounded yeah. like the right side of like a little bit sad, but a little bit kind of motivating. And, and anyway, just at the climax of this crescendo, like I remember listening to it and just thinking like, oh, God, like, like I could feel the goosebumps like bump out from behind my neck all the way down both arms. Uh, and I've, you know, I've had that experience a few times with different songs. Usually, the first few times I hear it, but it's an incredible experience to be truly emotionally moved by a piece of music, by something that's just 
a, yeah. a load of chords and then the right plucking at the right time with the right harmonies layered over the like to have that taken away from you to not be able to experience that to me feels like you're missing a real fundamental part of the human experience which i know sounds yeah. probably sounds a bit uh, over the top um, but it's and in some in some ways it's also it, it isn't necessarily that that people can't experience that it's that they're not listening properly right we've we've become a bit passive in our listening mm. activity where music's background music we're not truly focused in on it like you know we used to put a vinyl on and listen to it over and over and over and over and over and over and that's what came out of my my phd research actually it's like why do memories from youth have such like mega impact on us throughout our entire life even in late stage dementia when nothing else reaches people songs from their youth will still trigger memories and they'll sing the song with you and you know and because back in the day the way that we listened to music was very repetitive, very focused, very attentive. Yeah. And if people now don't listen to music in that way, then then they don't get the full effect because because they're not focusing their attention on the detail of the music. Yeah, I can I can see that. But do you think that will be the same for like these kids today? So that like imagine a sort of eighteen year old now versus an 18 year old i was 18 in 98 uh and there was no spotify there was no youtube there was just you know you'd buy an album i sound like a right old fogey now but like when like you'd buy a cd in the hope that all all of the tracks would be good and there wouldn't be any filler but you'd buy it and you know nine times out of ten there would be a lot of filler and it would be shit but you'd buy it and then you'd just listen to it out of you know perseverance like maybe if i listen to it enough then i'll get into it and and now I think, you know, they've got this just limitless broken fire hydrant just spraying out new content to them constantly. Uh, and it's the same with, you know, box sets and movies. It's just like endless supply that nothing is actually special anymore. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. if like when the kids who are sort of, you know, 17 or 18 now get to dementia, what is it going to have the same effect, do you think? I, I know we've had this conversation many, many, many times with many people, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You, you still get that attachment to certain bands. So obviously, you know, you've got, you know, Ed Sheeran, One Direction, BTS. You've got, you know, fans. There are still fans. Mm. Yeah, that's so, true. So, so there is that still repeat listening experience around those albums that come out um but it but it is very different and there's there's so much more choice as you say and even now you know i, I listen to playlists and things all the time but i could not tell you what i'm listening to i've got no idea what i'm listening to and it may or may not come around again and may never hear that again so from a memory point of view it's it's it, you know it's not the same as when you know like you, you go and get the record or go and get the cassette or cd or whatever it was listen to it over and over yeah. and over and over and over and the brain learns through repetition right so when you give it that much uh you know repeat delivery then those are very very well-formed memories and 
you know, when you look at one of the one of the pillars of wellness that's been hugely neglected for decades, and now we're seeing the the kind of impact of that is the um, you know neuroplasticity. So maintaining brain tissue. Right. So you go you go to the gym because you need to maintain muscle tissue, which which you know you lose muscle tissue over life if you're not active. So we, we're, we're maintaining our bone tissue, we're maintaining our cardiovascular vessels, everything else. It's all focused around that, but we're not really focused on shit. How do we maintain brain tissue, which also disappears throughout life if you don't actively exercise and, and put the brain in, in learning novel tasks? And, you know, the best way to drive neuroplasticity is learning a musical instrument. Really? Your great props right behind you there. Uh, yeah, fastest way, um, learning a musical instrument or learning a language. That's the best thing that you can do for your brain throughout your entire life. doesn't matter how old you are. Just because to, to build new pathways in the brain, you need to get to that point where you're really frustrated with the learning process, where it's like, ah, oh, this is so difficult. Yeah, yeah. So difficult, and and what and music, learning a musical instrument takes you through that that journey. You know, and what once it's easy, you've formed the pathways, and you need to learn a new instrument because you're no longer really putting your brain in that very complex novel situation because you've now formed the pathways. Mm. And so, if you're playing guitar, I'm I'm just learning drums at the moment because I can play guitar okay. and stuff. Like, right, so now I'm learning drums, which is total you know it's like this and this and your feet it's like yeah yeah uh, it, uh, and so that's you know i'm in that novel learning task with another instrument now you seem very passionate about what you do and uh you're obviously very credible and you've done studies and uh you have all the accolades and the the letters before your name uh would you give it all up to be a rock star <laughs> only if i didn't have to travel if i could be a rock star on zoom yeah well because touring is knackering yeah and uh, but but having said that age next year so so the books that i'm writing are, are a trilogy right they're like i've got like the first one the music diet yeah. second one yeah and the third one is called auto tune and it's going to be a live show Okay. So I'm totally going out. It's going to be interactive. So with the audience, building new brain connections by t doing different things, singing, different, listening to different songs, seeing how the brain reacts on screen with brain readers. You know, where, uh, where do you think this, this stuff is going to go? Because a, a common theme for some of these, uh, these podcasts, these shows, um, is is talking to the guest about their area of expertise, but then sort of projecting forward like five years, 10 years uh, and, and gazing into our crystal ball and thinking like, if, if the events of today carry on into tomorrow, like back to the future style, uh, where, where could this lead? Because I'm thinking, here's, here's my idea, is if you can look at people's gut health and you can test uh, their genome or like their body makeup and stuff and you can say look you're going to be more susceptible to this type of cancer or you're going to be blah 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 could we get to a point where you could test somebody's genitals and then decide like you could match them with somebody in a database and say like okay look you're look you have this kind of penis and balls 
and you'd probably do well with this kind of woman with her like like could it get to that yeah i mean what i mean anything's possible in the world nothing surprises me anymore uh so i i could totally see that that from happening and if they also had compatible diets with gut microbiome then you know the offspring would uh well if they were if they were trying to to produce offspring uh rather than just entertainment but it's yeah you know this the whole thing with the longevity the longevity science field at the moment is that it's absolutely fascinating because this kind of biohacking approach and these smart wellness habits that are used by all the longevity scientists in the world, all, all the professors at Stanford, Harvard, everywhere, right? That King's just, College. They're, they're just so I understand, these... so long, longevity science is, is projecting forward into the future, is it? Or... So longevity science is trying to help us live longer. Okay, right. Got it. And so that has exciting opportunities because it means living healthily longer right not just living forever but if we do all end up living to 120 or 150 then that brings a whole other you know load of problems on how are we going to feed all those people where are they going to live how are we going to you know so it's just it's it's a slightly fascinating exciting and mildly terrifying um future so but right now the pieces that i'm pulling out of the longevity science field is okay well you know what which bits of this science can we pull now into mainstream and just teach everyone Mm. so people can have a healthier longer you know longer healthy life and avoid chronic illness have you ever heard anyone in sort of power or influence uh remark about what we might do if like if people did live longer if you solve the problem that you're trying to solve which is to get people to have healthier guts and to achieve pillars of wellness and 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 as a byproduct of that perhaps living longer that there would be a real concern about food and living and like like maybe it's a problem that they don't want to solve have you have you ever heard that uh yeah i mean well no one would voice it other than you but uh (laughs) (laughs) but yeah isn't that why we're trying to go to mars it's um apparently who knows uh i you know it's it's a long way off but i do i do you know i I read well i know that it's going to be possible to correct diseases it's going to be before they even emerge right Mm. it will be have to say oh my god you know in 10 years time you might have this but don't worry because we can we can send in this uh, crispr cas9 and it will it will snip the the dna it will correct the genetic def- but can, uh, you, defect. can you imagine the fucking anti-vax cretiny that will infest popular culture right. discourse like at the moment they're shitting their tits over you know just having a jab like if you, if you start telling them like we're gonna drop this little thing in and it's gonna crawl up your arm and then like do blah, blah, like oh my god right right but 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 this is it it is going to be possible and then as you say it will come down to the kind of ethics of it it's yeah. like well if we're able to to do this do we do it you know if if just because you're able to do it doesn't mean that you should do it. And so this will rumble on for decades, right? Because it will go round and round and round of a lot of debate and 
and, and it will get more and more sophisticated and some of this stuff is all is already happening but um in an ethical way and I, actually there's a really interesting series that i saw on netflix i think it's called was it called becoming human or something and they they were literally looking at the crispr cas9 genetic editing stuff which you can actually get online you know i'm I've been doing little experiments myself just with bacteria, showing how you could take a bacteria that would normally die in a hostile environment and you can change the, the genetic structure of that bacteria and put it in the hostile environment in the dish and it will live because you have corrected the gene mm. that would normally cause it to to uh, be exterminated in that environment. And that... Yeah, all all of this is is out there. It's not science fiction. This is actual real stuff that's that's around right now. And I, 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 I don't kind of operate in that field. I'm more about natural biohacks. So sounds because the ears lead to the brain, and sound is one of the best biohacks at our disposal. Yeah. Natural daylight, cold water, food, all, all the stuff that we used to have in our ancient times. But but I am still fascinated by where this is going because it's, you know, it is clearly health healthcare is going to change dramatically, mm. and they probably will have the laws will probably have to change with it, you know. I mean, yeah. But fortunately, I'm not in those decision-making seats. No. No, I don't really ever harbour any aspiration to be in the sort of seat that has to decide whether it is ethical, like what, what, where the ethical decision lies in terms of letting people live, like granting them a longer time to spend with their families and their loved ones and, and so on, yeah. or having to think of like the greater good in, in terms of, like you said, food and where yeah. they're going to live, etc. Um, but what, because that, that's already happening now, right? Some people... Oh, you can have you know cancer treatment in this area, or you can't have cancer treatment here, or it's too expensive, or you can't and the other. And, and you know, I I know right now that the with the immunotherapy, uh, you know, the cancer therapies that they are now seeing that if your microbiome is optimized before you start the treatment, then you are much more likely to respond positively to the treatment. So things like that are quite easy to implement because. The NHS or you know private medical care or whoever could just say right we're going to test your gut microbiome so we can see what's going on in there before we start the treatment. Oh, hang on a minute, we need to optimise your gut microbiome before you start the treatment to have an increased chance of it of it working. And you know that kind of stuff is should be relatively straightforward and and inexpensive mm. and actually decreases the cost because if if you can improve the uh, well, I mean, you know, testing people's gut microbiome is going to reduce the risk of those illnesses anyway. So you don't have to treat them because they won't exist. Because our immune system is also uh, the gut microbiome is a, is a key component of our immune system. Mm. So the way the gut lining interacts with those cells. The, so. the sort of arguments, though, that you're putting across for having this stuff uh, uh, achievable on the NHS. Um, to to drive down costs in the long run um are very coherent and logical and like, they make perfect sense to me but does it bother you or does it worry you that we live in a time where politically 
the stupidest argument seems to win the day like it's not about what makes logical sense or what's good for britain in the long run the actual the, the cold harsh truth of it is that if someone like you sits on let's say question time or like good morning britain or something and you put across your case why this should be funded on the nhs you'll have some i don't know gray-haired tory guy that's you know very stuffy and he'll just see it as like oh you know it's freeload freeloaders will take advantage of it and we'll have health tourists from all over the world no 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 no, no. like and then it'll just get shot like does that 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 would worry me i think yeah which is why i mean I, i'm i'm more focused on how how do we make gut health tests so cheap that everyone can do it as like part of an everyday right, thing right, right? right it's like right i just do it every now and then like i brush my teeth you know it's part of my my routine and then I look to see what's that and then I just make a few adjustments and you know it's you you should be able to get one delivered by just eat right that yeah. that, that yeah. you just get a gut test and you poop in a in a tube send it to the lab and it tells you all you need to know and if it's cheap enough and it's easy to get mm. then then that's better than having to put it in the hands of any political or you know nhs yeah it's like well let's just make it really cheap and really available and let's get the education out there because most of the stuff that i'm doing is about teaching people that these things even are a thing right because most people don't know so so how do we get that information out there to say look you know join the gym if you want but that's not going to fix your gut microbiome and it's not going to fix your sleep and those are two key components of that are going to dictate whether you're going to get ill or not yeah yeah, yeah. um last last thing I, w I just want to come back to um uh, uh, on the subject of music was um we we talk about music's effect on the brain and uh you know making us feel sad or making us feel energized and so on um it's never too far from it seems uh, a sort of lazy journalist's pen to blame some sort of event or series of events on the music style that the people like the perpetrators were listening to so i'm thinking at the moment consciously about trap music because i read an article the other day uh, that said something about something along the lines of like 80 to 90 percent of stabbings in london could be traced back to trap music and i was i i quote tweeted it i said something along the lines of like well what trainers were they wearing and like were they wearing dark track suits maybe dark track suits make people kill each other you know like what what are we going to do about reebok maybe reebok have questions to answer with this sort of thing right because it's like it's this sort of attachment of of music and this I, I think because everyone knows that violins can make you feel sad that they then wrap that same logic around let's say rap music or uk garage or back in the day it would be rock and roll that it, it could create this moral panic that everyone understands that everyone thinks oh yeah music can make you act a certain way so it must be these crazy kids are listening to too much trap music and that's why they're running out stabbing people um do you and it's not just that it's it's been a repeating thing right so rock and roll punk yeah waves it, it it's like well what's what's the latest kind of intense high energy uh, uh attitude like what what is driving that that thing um and there will be you know after after this there'll be another iteration of it and that will be blamed for for everything and there is yeah, you know, there, there's. I was 
looking at some studies, can't remember where they were, but they were linking car accidents with the type of music that you were listening to at that time. Because now, obviously, you can get so much data from vehicles. Right. You can see, right, what are you listening to, how fast are you driving, and, you know, th different types of music do make us feel different, a different way. But there's more to it than that, you know. It's, it it's, must be, like... I could imagine that you might be caught in the middle a little bit because on the one hand, scientifically, you're not just saying that music can affect your mood and music can affect or, or uh, influence you, but you're also then you, in a position where as a music lover, you're sort of defending music's right to expression and that it could not or should not be blamed for the behaviour of like one or two individuals, right? Yeah, yeah. and it And it's... It's the easy scapegoat kind of thing, you know, because it's when you look at the the demographic and the age and how when when people are mainly very closely aligned with music during the earlier period of their life and and it, it plays a very big part in our identity and you know that the, there's more to it than that, but. But because of the way that it does, you know, it does influence the brain. That there, there is a reason that retailers use different types of music in stores and in restaurants and everything else. It's and in care homes, and it, it's because we know that different types of music do do have influence. But but it's only one part of the puzzle. Mm. But because it's always in that kind of especially in that age range and that demographic of young people who, who tend to be big music or, or, you know, very passionately involved in music because that's, that's happened for generations. That's not a new thing. Teenagers have always been very closely aligned with music and often to music that is very emotive and very, yeah. you know, makes you feel confident and, you, and, and gives you that kick. And, yeah, or like not even like necessarily like it, i'm thinking back really to myself of when i was like sort of 14 15 it wasn't about feeling confident or motivated it was more about sort of uh, empathy and knowing that there were other sort of you know grungy guys in cardigans and canvas bags that sort of felt isolated or felt you know not cool in the same way that i did um the shared identity yeah. and you find your tribe and it's a it's a cultural thing um but ultimately, it goes back to the fact that, well, it, it makes you feel a certain way because it's releasing, you know, dopamine, serotonin. There, there are there are brain chemical responses mm. that that make music a really great tonic for us because the ears lead to the brain, and especially with live music because you're not only getting that music through the ears. The brain is also getting that music through the skin um, because the vibrations yeah. are so intense in live experience, you know, which is well, live experience is a whole different way of, of communi communicating. Yeah. Uh, when, when I was at university, there was a guy, um, one of our lecturers, who he was a DJ actually as well. He was uh, music, it was like a music social theory uh, module that we were doing. And he was saying that if you look back through various civilizations, there is always some sort of like village communal uh, 
entity that everyone's a, a part of and it's usually like a church or you know a temple or something and that's where people go once a week and they're around their kinfolk and, and so on and there's usually like a guy or a person that you know on the stage who then preaches psalms or, or whatever and he said that in like modern western society uh, religion has sort of been binned really to a greater or lesser extent but people still have that pre-built it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like pre-programmed stuff going on in the brain but his take on it was you know people still have that uh biological need to be part of uh, a church-like entity and he was like in the modern world for young people actually that is a club like they go into the club and the dj that's on the stage is basically the priest and everyone is then close together and they feel sort of unity and you know they might take drugs to sort of uh i don't know uh exaggerate that sort of feeling but but ultimately it is the same setup i was like yeah fucking yeah that is true it doesn't have to be a dj it's, it could be a band it could be a rapper or whatever but it is it's ticking the same box right Religions, you know, have mostly got some kind of sound or music at their core. And a lot of those religious buildings, the acoustics are designed to amplify that kind of, you know, that preaching and that singing and that, that acoustic effect. Uh, and, you know, it's... We are drawn to that. There, there was some great research as well around beatboxing because... Oh, God, what's her name? Amazing professor, Sophie. Oh, God. Uh, if you look up her TED Talk, right, about beatboxing. Let's have a look. I can't remember her name. Sophie. Sophie. It was TED Talk, I think, about beatboxing. And she was showing on screen about how... Sophie Scott? How, yes. Right, there we go. So we... You know, she was saying that we, we were making all these different noises and things like that before we invented language and vocabulary because we were having to make lots of different noises with our mouth. And now we have to make very few, really, because we created a load of consonants and vowels and now we just put them together. And so we don't have to really go to the, the full extent of, of the types of sounds that we are physically able to make yeah. if we want to, but we don't. And that kind of, she was saying that, so you know singing songs and with the, the oldest instrument found is a flute that's like forty thousand years old uh, and a flute's a pretty bloody complicated interest in instrument to make right so before then we were probably doing body percussion and just rhythms and clapping and doing like singing not necessarily words if language hadn't been invented but yeah. you know we're singing tunes and things like that it's so deeply in our ancient ancestry that it, it's no it's no surprise that it's such a powerful biohack and, and we're really not using it you know there's there are two different ways of using music you use it for entertainment or you can use it functionally and say right i need to go to sleep relaxing music mm. you know i need to focus not busy music i need something simplistic and repetitive that's not going to distract my brain i need some energy i need some high and up tempo music and you know there is a functional way of, of using music which is how i've been using it with clients for decades and people were doing it for decades before i was and then there's the entertainment piece which is 
how we've really positioned it in society is that it's a commercial product it's it's the music industry it's and therefore yeah. oh well, it's not essential to life we don't need it we don't need venues so you know because they're noise pollution in certain environments that are now residential yeah. We don't need it in schools because it's not necessary. Do we need a hospital radio? Maybe not. There's cutbacks, you know, it's entertainment. Is that necessary? And, you know, yeah, it's necessary because it's a, it, it's the way we use sound and music goes back tens of thousands of years before we invented the music industry. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I, I sometimes think whenever I see any of those news stories about um, people shutting down clubs or bar, that actually, it's not really a music uh example but there used to be a club a comedy club in shoreditch called the comedy cafe and it was run by a guy called noel faulkner i think his name was uh and he was on lbc talking about uh basically letting rip on the culture of the city boy uh, he said like what had happened to his club around there i think they were they were lobbying to get it shut down or something and he said what happened was a load of city staff had moved into the area because it was shortage because it was a little bit cool uh and it was graffitied and you know you probably know this as well as i do that that was an area of historic deprivation and loads of artists moved in and graffitied and it became very artsy and then the city staff move in and buy flats and they uh, co-opt the creativity and the, the colorfulness and so on um but then what happens when those city staff get a little bit older or have children yeah. And suddenly they don't really like being in the middle of Shoreditch and it being loud. So they start lobbying to shut down these clubs. So he was saying like that's basically what happened to his club was uh, he didn't get his, his rent or his landlord thing renewed. Uh, the whole thing was going to be sold as flats. I don't know how the rest of that story ends, but um, I remember it really sort of chimed with me that I could totally see that happening because I'd worked in Bishopsgate, which is just sort of around the corner yeah. from from Shoreditch. Um with you know music venues it's clusters noise pollution and now it's it's so much easier for people to complain because they just send an anonymous email you know and the council has to act on it really whereas you had to send a letter or you had to actually go to the council offices and who can be bothered to do that you know now you just send an email mm. and and it's lodged as a complaint and there's a formal procedure and you know it's it's the kiss of death for yeah. not involved in a lot of these committees a few years ago with the, I was on the London the mayor of London's London music board specifically addressing this like how do we protect grassroots music venues how do we protect busking pitches that are also having the exact same problem and the agent of change clause was eventually put into the UK planning law by government but it was put in to the environmental pollution right part you know because it's still seen oh yes it's still a bit troublesome but we need to make sure that it's you know we put, we give some kind of protection and we've it's a yeah we, you know we we we've become very averse to sound yeah in that respect because it's like it used to be the sound of people having fun and now it's noise yeah yeah it's sort of people have lost this idea it, it's kind of ironic in a way that in the era that we're living in where everyone is so obsessed and flag wanky and uh makes such a a big deal out of british identity and you know sovereignty and all that stuff and poppies and statues and so on um 
that when it comes to something as fundamental and and as celebrated as the British music industry and venues and bands and um that that's not part of it is it it's sort of ignored it's seen as a bit of a pest yeah yeah and it's yeah i i you know i'm you can go wider than think well you know people are knackered people are stressed people have got mental health issues people are not sleeping properly because yeah. of all of those other things and there's there's a bigger picture of why everyone's become so moany you know it's like the slightest drop of a hat complaint oh, yeah yeah um, i mean i've I'm voiced react- i've voiced this theory a couple of times on on different episodes of this but um my theory is that twitter actually is a lot to blame for this stuff because back in the day you would just say what you felt around a pub like a pool table in a pub and if it was stupid or you were misguided or you'd you know been led up the garden path by someone else saying something similar your mates would keep you in check they would sort of say like what the fuck are you talking about Aid? you're talking shit like here's the pool cue shut up take it to-. and then you'd feel bad about it you'd be like oh like maybe i Maybe I did catch the wrong end of the stick with that one. I'll I'll try hard on it, or I won't say that again. And and now what happens is, firstly, you're likely to be out less because it's incredibly expensive to go out nowadays. But also, when you do say that stuff online on Twitter, even if your mates say, "What the what the fuck are you talking about?" a hundred people will retweet you and like you and favorite you and follow you, <laughs> and you feel like pumped up. You're like, "Wow, I've got a fucking I've got a point." I don't care if my mates tell me I'm talking shit, like. I know that this matters. Yeah, yeah. But um, right. Anyway, listen. Well, I could I could chat all night, uh, uh, Julia. But thank you so much for uh, for joining us tonight. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to grab your grab your books, um, then I'm assuming they're in all the usual places. That or they can order online or via your website or. Yeah, if you just Google my name, Dr. Julia Jones, or neuron or both uh or the music diet then then you find it and there's no there's a load of stuff on you know just you'll find various stuff that you don't necessarily need to make a purchase yeah to find content there's plenty of content out there if you, if you just google it cool okay so google dr julia jones and uh yeah we'll be back next week i've got a few more guests lined up for the next few weeks so um there shouldn't be such a break between this batch and the last batch um, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, then that's up and running now, and there'll be episodes of the podcast published on there first and foremost, and then out to iTunes and Spotify the, the days afterwards. Um, once again, thank you to everybody for listening or tuning in tonight, and we'll catch up with you next Friday. All right, cheerio. Bye for now. Bye.